hi again, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss, and it's my pleasure to be your host here on the podcast of the Acton Institute. Got a good one for you today. We'll be talking with Carl Zinsmeister of the Philanthropy Roundtable. He's vice president over there. Uh, Also a former uh, advisor in the George W. Bush White House, chief domestic policy advisor for a time there for President Bush, and uh, has a career spanning back to his time working for New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Democratic senator, uh, widely respected on both sides of the aisle in the United States Senate. So uh, Carl Zinsmeister has a long career, uh, a lot of experience to draw off of, and he's got a lot of interesting stuff to say about philanthropy, about education, and the role of philanthropy in education reform. So stick around. We'll have that interview for you in just a few moments. Before we get to that, I do want to point out he will be here with us. Uh, we'll highlight his event coming up here at the Acton Institute. He will be kicking off our Evenings at Acton series on Monday, October 3rd at 7 p.m. here at our Mark Murray Auditorium in the Acton Building. He'll be talking on the topic of Indispensable, How Philanthropy Fuels American Success. Uh, you can join us for that lecture. You can register at our website, uh, acton.org events. And while you're there, you might want to check out some other events, including the first uh, Acton Lecture Series event of fall 2016. This is our lunchtime lecture series, and our Acton Lecture Series for the fall kicks off with Dr. John Wilsey, who is Assistant Professor of History and Apologetics at Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary. He'll be joining us on Thursday, September 29th uh, here at noon. Doors open at 11.30, lunchtime lecture, and he'll be talking uh, about how to read Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, which is going to be a very interesting lecture. We'll be talking, actually, with Dr. Wilsey uh, in the next edition of Radio Free Act, and so stay tuned. That uh, interview will be posted within the next week as well. And uh, again, Thursday, September 29th at noon, that's uh, when the Acton Lecture Series kicks off with Dr. Wilsey. Hope you'll be able to head over to acton.org events, register, and join us for some edifying lectures at lunchtime and in the evenings here at the Acton Institute. We're always excited to have our lecture series get going again uh, in the fall. With all that being said, uh, let's uh, not waste any more time. Let's head over to my interview with Carl Zinsmeister of Philanthropy Roundtable on education reform and philanthropy in America. Here's my talk with Carl Zinsmeister. Well, I am pleased to be joined on the phone today uh, here on Radio Free Acton by Carl Zinsmeister. Carl is Vice President at Philanthropy Roundtable, a uh, organization in Washington, D.C. If you've never heard of it, they are uh, in the business of helping foundations, corporations, and uh, major donors everywhere to be effective and efficient in their giving. He is uh, the uh, in charge of the uh, magazine of the organization, book publishing and websites. Uh, Carl also has a background in politics. Uh, he served as the chief domestic policy advisor from 2006 to 2009 for President George W. Bush and... Uh, going back a ways, uh, he's been in, in the political arena for quite a few years, got his start working for uh, New York Democratic Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan way back when. And uh, Carl, first of all, uh, there's a lot more to your bio, but we'll leave it at that. And, and thank you for joining us today. I very much appreciate your time. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, uh, Carl, you're going to be coming to uh, to Acton here in, in not too long, just a couple weeks away, uh, talking about philanthropy as part of our evenings at Acton uh, lecture series. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about education reform. You've done a lot of 
a lot of research and a lot of work in this area of education policy and reform, especially as it relates to K through 12 education. And if we look at the situation as it stands, primary education in the United States is still uh, largely dominated by the traditional public school model. And we'll often hear about uh, failing public schools or funding crises in public education or general education crises where the STEM topics are not being addressed and we're not keeping up with the rest of the world in, say, science and technology. Can you give us a, a sort of a general overview of the state of public education in America today? Is the traditional system still working well for, uh, for kids and for their parents? Well, I guess the good news, Mark, is that the alarm bell was wrong and people have taken it seriously. So I think we are out of the, the denial phase, the, the sort of phase where you pretend everything's great. I think we realize everything is not great. And we have some very interesting experiments on uh, encouraging solutions. That said, there's still an awful lot of mediocrity to really uh, low quality schooling going on in this country in our public education system. And there were attempts to, 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 to fix that um, starting in the 1980s, and they were very conventional. The idea was you'd basically just give the schools more money. And sometimes this was done by raising public funding of schools, and in many cases, corporations and wealthy donors thought that they could write checks to their local uh, public school district and get a better result. And that was a huge disappointment. There, there were almost no results to show from that initial uh, wave of um, – of, of effort that came after the school alarm rang in the early 1980s. And then we got a little smarter uh, and led really by some very savvy and tough-minded philanthropists, we began to try different things. And that, that second reform wave, Mark, which started, I would say, basically in the mid-90s, which is when charter schools got started and when we got serious about school choice for religious schools and for private schools, that second wave of reform, which is, I think, what you want to talk about some uh, this afternoon, um, ha has really been very exciting and very encouraging. Well, let, let's get into that a little bit because a lot of those uh, – well, I, I'll say this. I, I have a background in, in legislative uh, legislative politics as well, working in the Michigan House of Representatives on the state level, and you, of course, have spent a lot of time on the federal level. I know that there's a, the, one of the things that I walked away from that experience with is that even working for a relatively conservative, uh, you know, Republican politician, the, if there's one thing that you can never spend enough money on and your constituents will always be happy with you, it's education. People just sort of assume that education spending, higher spending equals better schools. And, and you're right to say that that has not been the case. And so in a lot of those uh, underperforming districts and cities, those charter schools have been a, a real godsend. Talk a little bit about the rise of charter schools and why they are succeeding in a lot of cases where previous reform efforts have failed. What is it about charter schools that is making a difference? Well, charter schools are, are just it began as a giant experiment, and like a lot of experiments, Mark, that we made a lot of goofs early on, and no one really knew how to how to proceed. So people just tried everything, and you know, you throw spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks, and that um, became. Uh, over time, we winnowed down the different experiments, and the, the stuff that did not work was was ended. And we're now getting to the point where charter schools are becoming quite efficient at having good results. And the best charter schools are just astonishing. I mean, the uh, there are now literally schools in some of the poorest districts of our major cities that are producing results pretty much on par with good suburban schools, which is amazing, considering that they're working with kids that in three cases out of four are 
are minorities and, and, and well below the poverty line and, and coming from single-parent families, you know, backgrounds where these kids have a lot of rocks on their backs to start off with. And, and nonetheless, these charter schools and in some cases some um, uh, schools of choice that are private schools have figured out that they can compensate for those 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 difficult structural disadvantages and pull these kids up to a uh, a, an amazingly impressive level I'm, and this continues to happen just to give you a couple of really really recent news tidbits to help people understand i'm not just kind of pulling this out of my hat the um we just got news uh literally a week or so ago that um uh, the, uh, some some catholic schools in very poor neighborhoods in new york city had just um uh, shown 16-point and 13-point gains on the uh, English and math assessments in New York State, respectively. Just really giant jumps in one year. Uh, the success academies in New York City have have shown uh, just in, uh, their their proficiency rates. The the rates at which their kids score at the proficient level on the statewide tests are now about two or three times um, the level of uh, of the public schools with the exact same kids. Um, so you're getting these these really dramatically impressive results uh, on the charter side, and one interesting thing that is happening, Mark, is that with this kind of discovery process that's taken place where we've learned that, you know, a longer school day helps and certain kinds of teaching patterns help and certain kinds of disciplines and rules help uh, and certain kinds of curricula are better than others. Some of those lessons are now passing over the uh, the Chinese wall to the private side and are being picked up, for instance, in Catholic schools, where you've, you're getting Catholic schools now that are that are learning some of the lessons of the charter school revolution. So this is, you know, this is when reform gets exciting, when you begin to get positive verdicts and you begin to share, you know, uh, what works and and, um, and we're, we're just really at the beginning of that upward curve. I, I think our best years are definitely ahead of us. But um, I think you'd, you'd have to say that um, that uh, you know we're we're um, we're in the middle, let's say, the early middle of a uh, of a real reform revolution on the K twelve education side. That is a great place to be. Uh, the the interesting thing you you mentioned New York City and some of the results that we're seeing in New York City in particular, and that sort of segues into my next question because the, the charter schools are obviously not without their critics, and New York City is an example of that. Mayor Bill De Blasio, when he took office really uh, seemed to clamp down on charter schools in New York City uh, in, in terms of where they can operate and how much money they can, they can have available to them. And there are a lot of these types of criticisms generally from the left that say, look, these charter schools, uh, they're, they're not as good as they seem. What they're doing is perhaps the, the, the arguments that I've heard are they, what they're doing is they're skimming the best students off of the local public schools and, and sort of they, they benefit from that, but they leave behind all the other students to sort of languish and they don't actually do anything for the, the old public schools that they're drawing from. Or, uh, you know, the, the other argument is basically the, the results that we're seeing from, from charter schools simply aren't there. They aren't, uh, they, aren't, uh, they aren't as good as they seem. And if they do well, it's because they've skimmed the good students. Are, they, are these criticisms, you know, you hear a lot of this stuff and a lot of it comes from uh, your your traditional educators, teachers unions, and the, and and the like are these you know the, the, are these valid criticisms or the, or, or is there really something uh, some meat there to these charter schools that that's really uh, causing sort of a, a improvement on both sides of the fence? Well, again, I want to kind of be fair and, and acknowledge that there there are now something like seven thousand different charter schools, Mark, and um, and about half of all the kids in charter schools. Uh, go to a charter school that's a that's a single campus operation, and it's not part of a network. Or it's, so basically, these are kind of mom and pop operations that have been built up from from scratch, 
and they do vary. I mean, I think it's really important to, to be honest and say there are poor charter schools out there. There is a big group in the middle, and then there is a very exceptionally large group uh, that are exceptional. And we need to keep working on the poor schools. Closing them down is, 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 is that's the great thing about charters. It's impossible, as you know, to close down a, a poor public school. Charter, poor, poor charter schools get closed down every year in the hundreds, and they get replaced by better schools. So that is the, 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 the sort of the, the, the trend, the big tide that's happening is that charters every year get a little better, get a little better, get a little better, and they become more numerous. And to answer your question frontally, it's, it's very unfair and inaccurate as this kind of social science proposition to say that charters are just like other schools or no better than or only look good because they take the best students. Those are easy things for economists to adjust for. That's what economists were born to do, was to, to sort of compare uh, you know, kids from the same family, one who went to a charter school, one who went to a public school in the same neighborhood. That's, those sorts of tests have been run, and there's no question but that the, uh, the average charter school is producing a much better result today than the average uh, public school uh, with the same kind of child. And again, it's very good researchers by, from places like Stanford that are now saying that there's a, the best studies. If any of our listeners are real um, numbers um, weenies, is uh, done by a group called Credo, C-R-E-D-O, uh, out of Stanford, and they've done these, as I say, very sophisticated studies. And uh, so, yeah, we we know that this is a this is a better way to go. Um, and as I say, we also know we have a lot to learn and need to continue to improve. And, the, and the, 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 that blast-off curve, that sort of you know airplane taking off into the sky, we've just lifted off, and now we're starting to really crank upward and, and have impressive results. Um, and you know, the, I think the first thing you have to do, though, is to get, a, get beyond this idea that, of making excuses. I mean, that's the problem we had with our public schools during the 60s and 70s and early 80s before we began to get competition, was that they, the, the, the unions and the teachers and the administrators all said, oh, these are kids with so many issues. They come to school with so much poverty and so much family dysfunction. You couldn't do any better. You know, we're doing the best we can. There is, you cannot have excellence with this kind of demographic uh, background with children. And the really wonderful thing about charter schools and the good Catholic schools is that they've put the lie to that proposition. They've shown that they can take that exact population and lead, lead them to good results. And the, the nationwide demographics, Mark, if our listeners are interested, is that, is that um, three-quarters today of all the children in charter schools, and there are about three million of all of those kids who are in charter schools today, three-quarters are a minority and uh, about 55% of them are, are in deep poverty, and the rest are in, in low-income low families. Uh, a very large fraction of them are also single-parent families. So these are, these are kids who do not have a lot of advantages. These are not kind of the cream of the crop. These are kids that really deserve and need uh, society's help um, to kind of get over some humps that they were born into. And, uh, and that's the group that charters are doing well above average with. Carl, let's turn to uh, your day job at Philanthropy Roundtable, and how, uh, what, what, what role does private philanthropy, uh, either individuals or, or organizations, what role can private philanthropy pay, play in uh, supporting education reform efforts like charter schools? Often we think of, uh, of this as a, a simple matter of government funding, but uh, how, how does private philanthropy p play into this, uh, this reform effort? Well, that's a good and important question. You know, charter schools are public schools. As, as probably many of our listeners know, they are funded by um, the, the, re the respective state and city um, once they're up and running on a per-pupil per, per, uh, basis. So if you've got 1,000 pupils and they reimburse you at a per-pupil per per basis to, to, um, with, with public funding. However, 
you first got to get up and running. And almost none of the states participate in that process. They are not willing to help you hire the teachers. They're not willing to help you train your principals. They are not willing to help you acquire a building. They will not write your curriculum for you. So those are big expenses that have to come from someplace other than public funding. And that's where donors have kicked in, Mark. Uh, philanthropy has been hugely important as a kind of a spark plug to get charter schools opened and established and staffed with good people. And then once they're up and running, uh, they are eligible for public reimbursements. So that's a, uh, that's a, that's a really important spark plug role. Uh, on, the, uh, on the private and, and, and religious school side, um, the importance of philanthropy is even greater. Um, there are no public reimbursements for those kids. So uh, first of all, the parents bear a tuition load in, in all of those kinds of schools. And uh, philanthropy is, is used very heavily to kind of reduce that tuition load, to, to try to create as many scholarships as possible so that kids who are in need can attend those schools where they have a really crummy alternative as a public school. So in both of those sectors, philanthropy has been huge. But maybe the biggest role, I would say, Mark, is that philanthropy has been a, a kind of an inventor, a kind of a risk-taking force that said, this is not good enough. We're not willing to sort of make these excuses that I was just describing five minutes ago. We, we have to try something dramatically different. And they have broken out of this kind of bureaucratic mindset that a lot of the big school districts get into, and they've tried some, some really different things. As I say, much longer school years, longer school days, hiring teachers that don't have conventional credentials. They just hire a physics major to hire to teach physics. That might sound like common sense, but it's illegal in a public school. <laughs> uh, you have to have someone who's got a teacher's credential to, to teach physics. So those are the kinds of areas where philanthropy has been really important in breaking the mold. Philanthropy uh, is, is a a, a catalyst for innovation in that sense. That's great. And, and, and you are actually coming to Acton uh, on October 3rd, the evening of October 3rd, 7 o'clock, here uh, at our Mark Murray Auditorium to talk about philanthropy a little bit more broadly. And uh, I think uh, one of the things that, that's part of your, your uh, address, uh, which is, is titled How Philanthropy Fuels American Success, you've just come out with a new resource at Philanthropy Roundtable uh, called the Almanac of American Philanthropy. We'll talk a little bit about philanthropy in general, and, and specifically the Almanac. What is it that you're trying to accomplish there? Yeah, you know, I, I think everyone sort of likes philanthropy, Mark, but they often view it as kind of a nice little hobby, you know, sort of a sweet little thing about America. We have these soup kitchens, and we have these scholarships, and we have these, you know, hospital gifts, and that's nice. Who would be against that? But it's not terribly fundamentally important. That's really a big misreading of what philanthropy does in this country. Philanthropy is a really, really important uh, force in terms of solving problems. Uh, first of all, it's big. I mean, 10% uh, of our workforce now works in the nonprofit sector. So it, it, it's a big chunk of our economy. Um, and it's an even bigger chunk than that of our uh, kind of an in, our, our kind of our venture, our venture capital, if you will. I mean, there's a, you know, just as in business, it, there are you know, startups and, and entrepreneurs and people that kind of think fresh thoughts to kind of get new ventures launched. Well, very much the same thing happens on the, uh, the social problem side, where you have a social problem and very often the bureaucracies and the big private firms are not going to be very inventive about attacking that problem. But you get these, this cadre of social entrepreneurs who uh, can do amazing things if they have a small amount of resources to kind of get them launched. And so that's where philanthropy has been really, really important. And we've been talking about it in the realm of education reform here, but just kind of multiply that by, you know, 10 other sectors in, in health care and in, in, the, in, in the kind of neglected diseases category and in, in new drug discovery, in, in um, you know, public parks that have been neglected or are not 
uh, ever produced in, in, in city uh, neighborhoods that really need them. There are all kinds of sectors like this where philanthropy has really been the spark plug and continues to be, will continue in the future to be uh, a force for, uh, for really positive um, uh, uh, you know, invention and creation. So that's what I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to try to get people to understand that this is a huge part of our nation and um, really not just a hobby. And, and it's also amazingly interesting. You can't imagine how many fascinating men and women uh, have, have been involved in this process. So that's one of the things I try to do in, my, in, in these talks is I try to really bring to life this, this sector that could sound kind of dusty and sleepy to people uh, from afar. But when you get beneath the covers and really look what's going on, it, it's very exciting. Thinking in the context of, of just sort of the American experiment, though, uh, philanthropy uh, must it, it, it's a huge part of the uh, the sort of the mediating institutions between the citizen and the government. It's it's a big part of keeping our society free and vibrant, is it not? Yes, indeed, always has been, Mark. But a lot of people sort of think that's the past tense. They think, well, yep, it was you know the barn raisings and the the stuff on the frontier. We all know about that. That was a big part of what built us as a as a free people. But they think that's now passe. I mean, sort of since the Depression and, and World War II, they sort of think, well. At this point, any big problem or any serious, uh, you know, sort of glitch that's got to be solved, you got to bring in the government, and that is simply not accurate. As I say, it's not what is happening today. It is not what has happened in the in in, in the recent past, and it is not what the most uh, uh, inventive social problem solvers are 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 going to do in the future. So that's the. Um, that's the kind of the connection I'm trying to make is that this is not a story written in the past tense. That this is still a, a very important and vibrant part of our uh, of our um, of our nation today. Well, Carl, thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. I've been talking with Carl Zinsmeister of the uh, Philanthropy Roundtable. He's going to be with us here at the Acton Institute Monday evening, October third. At 7 p.m., uh, his talk will be titled "Indispensable: How Philanthropy Fuels American Success." And uh, you can find out more about the Philanthropy Roundtable at uh, their website, philanthropyroundtable.org. Carl's website, carlzinsmeister.com, has a lot of resources as well. And, Carl, thank you so much. We look forward to having you here at Acton. It's great fun, Mark. Thanks for having me on. And that brings this edition of Radio Free Acton to a close. Thanks once again to uh, Carl Zinsmeister, Vice President at the Philanthropy Roundtable. Uh, very much appreciate his time today to talk with us here on Radio Free Acton. You can find more information about Philanthropy Roundtable at their website at philanthropyroundtable.org. And Carl, of course, has his own personal website, carlzinsmeister.com. Uh, lots of great information at both of those places, and uh, we hope you'll check them out. And we hope you'll join us as well for Carl's evenings at Acton lecture uh, on Monday, October 3rd, kicking off our 2016 evening series here at the Acton Institute at our Mark Murray Auditorium. To register, head over to acton.org slash events uh, and uh, join us from uh, Carl's lecture entitled Indispensable, How Philanthropy Fuels American Success. Thanks as well to all of you who have joined us and listened to the podcast this week. We appreciate it and uh, we hope that you will tell others about uh, Radio Free Acton and the Acton Institute Power Blog. Uh, news, information, and commentary from an Acton perspective there on the blog, uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, every week. And uh, that's available at blog.acton.org. Send that link around to anyone you think might benefit from a little bit of Acton perspective on uh, news and events. Thanks again for joining us on Radio Free Acton. We will be back with another edition very soon, talking with John Wilsey 
of Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary. He will be kicking off our Acton Lecture Series, uh, the Noontime Lectures for the fall, coming up very quickly. So head over to acton.org events to check out all our uh, upcoming events schedule. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again on the next edition of Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Thanks for joining us again, and have a great day, everybody. Thank you.